hearing the voice of God is a muscle. And like all muscles, it has to be used to get strong. When you're a child learning to speak, you hear and listen, and then you practice speaking. Your parents model words and sounds and teach you to speak by simply speaking and being near you. The nearness of being around communicators allows you to become a better one. In the prophetic, it is the same. You have to hear God's voice to become a strong speaker of those words. Being near to God is the key. For a very long time, my hearing muscles were totally atrophied because I didn't even know I had them. But if you're willing, God will develop this muscle. I have been a Christian since I was five years old, and for a very long time, my hearing muscles looked a lot like my lower part of my upper arm does now, floppy, unused, super white because it never sees the sun, and instead of adding strength to my arm, it acts more like a skin curtain. Yikes. Okay. Okay. Now that you're trying to erase that mental picture, which please erase it, I have to tell you that that arm does not stay floppy. (laughs) When you're loved by God, which just in case you forgot, you are so, so loved by God. He is committed to growing us in his strength and his power. For me, nothing has built this muscle more than being in a season of grief and seasons of grieving. Of course, God uses joy and peace and seasons of love to grow us and help us evolve, but he's kind. So he won't waste any human experience. He will use the pain and our sin and suffering. He will use the loss and the ache of this world. He doesn't have those things to offer, but his kindness to not waste what the world provides That's incredible. In seasons of grief, it's the nearness of God that has held me together. He is so invested in my redemption that he will use the hardest and ugliest things to bring me closer to him. He sidles up next to me when the world is screaming to give up. And he kindly says, hello, sweet girl. Are you ready to let me hold this now? In 2015, I was pregnant with my third daughter. I had a two-year-old and a four-month-old when I found out I was pregnant. I was very tired. Motherhood was complicated for me. I became a mother at 19, which is a whole other podcast, but I spent a decade praying I would never get pregnant (laughs) and almost another decade trying to get pregnant. My own complicated mother was dying of stage four cancer. And the same month she was diagnosed, I had my first miscarriage. I was having this like paralleled experience and every new level of death my mom was experiencing, I was simultaneously experiencing life. And I think it was year, yeah, year four of her cancer and four years of four consecutive pregnancies. I was complicated, and I was hormonal. I was a mess. But in all the complicated feelings, 
I was able to fall madly in love with knowing I was going to have three little girls all under the age of three. (laughs) Because of my age, I was considered a geriatric pregnancy. Thank you so much, medical community, for that. So I found out at eight weeks that we were having a girl, and Matt and I named her Birdie Dawn. When I am pregnant, I ask God who this little human's going to be. I ask him for words and scriptures that connect me to this sweet, brilliant little human that he created. I want to start knowing them, like, as soon as possible. One morning in my basement, a bunch of moms were gathered, as moms do, because we are totally tribal, and we can't do this alone. We were in a time of prayer and asking God to speak to us about our kids, like a wind that blew through my soul and landed on my fingers. I flipped my Bible to Zechariah 2.5. It seemed like it was highlighted in gold. And I read the words, but heard Bertie's name in it. It read like this. And I myself will be a wall of fire around Bertie, declares the Lord. And I will be the glory in her midst. This scripture seemed a little adult and not quite the sweet little kid kind of verse. But where I see a baby, God sees a full human being. My mom brain went to imagining what kind of life she would have that she would need this kind of protection. I imagined her being in an army or maybe a missionary. I'd never thought these things about any of my other kids before. But I knew in my deepest knowing that this girl would probably be in war. But she would also be protected. God was preparing me for a life of trusting her with him. I also started um, uh, reading a lot about birds uh, during this time. And I learned that they instinctively know where their home is. And they can always find their way back. And I know that my daughter is not a bird. But... It gave me great comfort that no matter where her life took her, I just believed she would always find her way back home. We traded in our car for a minivan. We bought another crib and another infant car seat. And when my girls took naps, I sorted their clothes that our youngest daughter had just grown out of and would now be used again. And that Christmas, I ordered stockings with all the kids' names embroidered on them. And my husband, he... He relished and delighted that he would be a father of three girls. I fell madly in love with Bertie. She was my warrior, and there was just something about her that seemed ethereal. At 22 weeks, we went in for a normal ultrasound. I was supposed to have it at 20 weeks, but with two other little kids, we just got in when we could. My dad was there with us in the room, and our girls sat on his lap, and they were looking at the monitor, monitor, waiting to see their sister. Matt and I were giggling, just in excitement, to see our girl. The technician was the same woman I'd had during my miscarriage and during two consecutive pregnancies. She knew us, and I had learned to read her face. And what I read on her face when she put that wand on my belly and looked at the screen was despair. The room was silent, and our faces paused, like in shock. 
I saw her body. It was perfect. Ten fingers, ten toes, all her organs were there. They were in place. But her heart, her heart was not beating. The air left the room, and the technician looked at me and said, I can't find a heartbeat. I'm going to go get the doctor, and she can take a look. The room was truly still. No one moved because none of us knew what to do. I could sense anger and rage and sadness and ache just waiting on the other side of that exam room door. They were ready to pounce on me. But inside the room, I was still pregnant and Bertie was somehow still possible. I looked at Matt. We were both crying My dad quickly told the girls they were going to go to the waiting room and play with the toys. The doctor came in and confirmed, no heartbeat. She told me I would have to deliver the baby tonight. She was too big and I'd have to be induced in labor to birth her body. I don't, I don't know how to describe what came over me or maybe even what came alive within me, but I asked her if we had to do it tonight. Could we wait a few days? She said the longest I could wait would be a week, and I took it. In one week, I was supposed to deliver my stillborn baby girl, but that also gave me a week to war for her life. I I told everyone I knew. I posted on social media pages. I was asking for revival, for resurrection, asking for my daughter to come back to life. I spent a week holding back my grief, Daily, I commanded her body. I would command Bertie's body back to life. Hourly, it seems, I would remind God what he had told Mary and Martha in the Gospel of John when Lazarus laid in the tomb. I reminded him quite aggressively that his glory could be revealed at any moment and that he could call her name and she could rise. He could make her heart beat again. In between changing diapers, making snacks and bedtime. I would beat my fist on the floor in my bedroom and I would command Bertie to live. On the way back to taking my mom, from taking my mom to chemo and bringing her to chemo and taking care of her after she was sick, I would tether myself to the truth that I believed in a God who released miracles on this earth. I would get in my shower And I would yell, life, Bertie, come back to life. The week passed and we walked into the hospital where we had delivered our girls. This time, though, we went to a different wing of the labor and delivery unit. It was a room at the very end of the hall. It's quiet. No monitors that beep and measure contractions. No blood pressure cuffs. Not much light. It was made, I guess, to be softer, but the absence of physical light made me feel really afraid. Almost like we were there, but we were supposed to be a secret. There was a strange shame I felt because I had failed to complete the pregnancy. And maybe the room was hidden away because they didn't want the other mothers who were birthing their babies to know that something so morbid was happening so close. I laid on the bed and I asked them, please, just do another ultrasound. I wanted to see her. 
I wanted to see if her heart had started beating. They kindly and reluctantly did. There was no heartbeat. I was still determined, though, and I knew as soon as she was delivered, I could hold her and speak life to her body. I knew that she could be raised. I had so much faith. I I felt like I could have emptied a morgue. They asked me if I wanted any drugs for the pain. I said no. I just wanted to be fully present. This was all I was going to have with her. Fully alive to what was happening. They filled the IV with Pitocin and started contractions. In the early morning hours, I just watched the dark sky out the window. On this night, a few doors down the hall, there would be women who would hold their babies and kiss their partners and cry because heaven had come to earth. And that piece of heaven was wrapped up tightly in their arms. I was jealous. I had to tether myself to hope that maybe I would have a miracle and hold heaven too. Matt fell asleep on the couch and I watched my belly move as the contraction started. During the week, I'd been praying that if I was about to go through such a horrific experience, then I didn't want it to be all wasted. If I was going to have to deliver death, then I wanted all of the dead things in my body to be delivered. I wanted a full body deliverance. I wanted a fresh baptism. I wanted a massive upgrade in who God called me to be. I contended for both Bertie's inheritance and my own. I wanted all of God. I wanted everything his blood paid for. My water broke and the contractions intensified. I still didn't wake Matt yet. He was grieving and aching. And he was tired from all of our warring. And I, I kind of reveled in these moments of being in that room, doing what my body was made to do and watching my spirit do what it was created to do, to fight for life. She was coming and I called the nurse. Matt woke up and my doctor came in. I pushed with ease and, and really just minor pain. She came out. The room was quiet. In other rooms, other mothers pushed and their babies came out. And the doctors and nurses and the friends and family, they all squealed with joy and delight and laughter and tears. In our room, instead of congratulations, there were silent condolences. Delivering a baby Alive or dead requires all of yourself. I gave all of myself. Instead of having my baby placed on my chest as soon as she came out like my other children, they took Bertie into the other room to clean her up so we could hold her. I was angry. No one else held space for hope. Just felt like Matt and I did. Next, I had to endure my uterus being cleaned out scraped and completely emptied of any remnant of her. This was actually traumatic. It was excruciating. The pain of having a doctor like elbow deep, her arm inside of your body to rid you of the life that once occupied that space, that that pain is not even worth describing. 
I asked for drugs, as many drugs as they could pump into me. They gave me something, but it, it honestly might as well have been like a children's Tylenol. I felt everything, every scrape and every pull. I don't know how long this went on for, but the sun was now rising. They brought the ultrasound machine in and they had to look at my my womb to make sure everything was cleared out. It was the first sound of light that had been in that room all night from the doctor. She said, wow, I've never seen this before, but your uterus is glowing. It's like it's brand new. My tomb had been made a womb again. Maybe life was possible. I want to interject here for just a second and mention that I have told the story before and for the most part has been held with honor and the sacredness that it deserves. But I've been questioned as to why I would wait a week to deliver her. I've been asked why I prayed so hard and contended for that long. Why I asked others to pray with me to fight for her life. This is what I can tell you. I knew I could only go on living if I had exhausted every ounce of my faith that existed in me. I had to know that if I was going to bury my daughter, it was only after I had commanded her to get up out of that grave. The gravity of my child dying and the grief that I could be living in felt like being suffocated and drowning at the same time. I had to know that I fought to breathe. Because when your child dies, you also want to die. And the domino effect, wanting to die, felt unyielding. And and so I prayed and I contended and I warred because I was simultaneously full of hope and totally afraid of death. If she died and I had not contended, I would have lived like the walking dead because regret and shame would have devoured me. I don't have a judgment or even an opinion about how someone else walks through this. It's all impossible. But I can say without any doubt, it was the right thing for us to do. Birdie Dawn Brown was born on February 16th. She was one pound eight ounces and 16 inches long. She looked just like her beautiful sisters. And as I held her, I knew she was gone. And I knew that asking God to bring her back to me would now be so cruel because she'd only known the glory of his presence. To bring her back to me would mean I was asking her to leave glory and light and goodness. If she were to breathe on this earth again, I would be asking her to leave the very origin of life and sit in a body that would eventually die, but to live with a spirit that had known divinity face to face. To ease my ache and relieve me of suffering, I was asking for her to live without majesty. And that's all she'd known. And I just couldn't do it. I stopped asking for her to come back. And I cried and I wailed and I sobbed. My whole being broke because the war was over and my daughter was dead. 
We didn't hold her for long because somehow we both knew. It just, it wasn't her. She was home. She was now more alive than we had ever been. She had the ultimate home birth, and her existence had never known anything but love. All of this was true, but it wasn't enough to take away the pain of our broken hearts. When someone dies and you know that they're alive with Jesus, okay, like, I feel like people need to hear this. It is both a relief and it's torture. We weren't created to know death. So when death happens, no matter how much you know they are with Jesus, you are left unresolved. You're like a minor chord at the end of a sad song. And no matter how much you want that musician to resolve it, they don't. And you're just left aching for what's supposed to come next. That morning, we left the hospital Our daughter went to the mortuary, and we went home to our two girls. After a battle like that, a new war begins. I finally opened that door for rage and anger and despair. They made their home real quick in my body. But the feeling I was most uncomfortable with was disappointment. I was so deeply disappointed in God. I mean, I was was let down. God failed me. The God who I loved with everything in me, who I'd given my whole life to, had like he didn't come through. The weight of that disappointment broke my bones in places I didn't know bones could break. I was laid bare before the Lord. I was laid bare before everyone. My grief, my grief was unyielding, and I understood the Old Testament fathers. I tore my clothes and I beat my body. I made some nasty, horrible vows in anger. And then I renounced those vows. I yelled at God, and I threw my fists in the air at him. I even threw the middle finger at him. I blamed him. I shamed him. I cursed his words, and I threw my whole self into his chest to hold me while I felt and I did all of those things. He was the only one who could handle me. All of my rage, anger, sorrow, grief, disappointment. Only he could hold it and only he could mend it. Ugh, it's just uncomfortable, that paradox of both needing God and being so disappointed in him. But it can be only be held together by love. His love for me and my love for him. God and I had been through way too much together. I, c- I mean, I will never walk away from God. But I was shattered. I did not feel like I was walking in the valley of the shadow of death. I felt like I was camping there. I had made a home in that valley and I wasn't leaving. And nevertheless, he was with me. The presence of God in that valley was more palpable than my own beating heart. The nearness of God in the grief was closer than skin to skin. He he occupied my cells. There was 
no molecule of my existence that did not contain both complete ache and complete disappointment. And he held them together. He held me together. I would spend nights laying on my cold bathroom floor, like in the middle of the night, just to sober myself up from the heartache, just from the tears, from crying, just that kind of aching gives you headaches. And the cold bathroom floor made me feel sober. Morning would come again and I would have babies to tend to and a dying mother to care for because death doesn't stop other life from living. And on the cold floor, I would lay there and Jesus, he laid there with me face to face. Sometimes, sometimes I could look at his eyes, but most of the time I couldn't. I was mad at him and I needed him. He made sure, though, that every breath I took was coated with hope and with love. I would breathe in him and breathe out ache. And night after night, he would lift me up off the floor and walk me to bed. My husband, my incredible, fierce, mighty husband. He would lay there sleeping, dealing with his own grief and disappointment. God's tenderness wooed me back from rage. No matter how I ached, I trusted him because he understood my pain. He had also lived through his child dying. Minute by minute, he would say to me, and I'm not kidding you, he would say this to me over and over again. Trust me, I've got you, my sweet girl. What God knows and what I'm consistently learning is that when I'm emptied, I can be filled with him. He was using the absolute of this world and tilling the soil of my broken heart to plant deep roots of trust in him. With every exhale of ache, he resuscitated me. He never, ever, ever, ever left me. And in the valley of the shadow of death where I had made camp and can see no way out, Jesus, he tended the fire. He kept me warm. And when I was laid bare, he covered me and he comforted me. And when I was ready... And truly, when I was ready, he never rushed me. He walked me out of the valley. The presence I knew with him in the, in the dark, it changed how I knew him in the light. The way he spoke to me, intended to me, the way he cared for me, spoke life to me. It, it changed like my internal structure. I was connected to him more than ever before. He was the sun and I was the moon and my light and life was just tethered to his. Listen, I am not over my daughter dying. Let me rephrase that. Um, I will never be over my daughter dying. I still mourn. I still miss her. And there are anniversaries that still make me ache and cry just talking about it now. The tears just come. The imagined future and life we were going to live, I, I still grieve that. 
I know I will experience more death and more loss, and there will be more walks in that valley of grief. You don't get over grief, but grief allows you to know that you loved. Grief informs us that love is still the stronger force. And even that doesn't make it better sometimes. Loss and grief are are deep wounds, but they do find their way. And there's healing and, and they become a scar, like a badge of glory you earned in battle. I thought grief broke me, but I see how it actually broke me open and made room for more. The way that God met me when I cursed him revealed what his love really looks like. He fights for his children and his grace can temper our harsh words and he can hold all of our sorrow. I totally understand how he could leave the 99 and chase after the one. I understand this new depth of to his love because how he met me in my disappointment and the love he gave me when I was bent and broken. It grafted me into a new place in his heart. The love he's given me has become how I love. He sat with me even when I was mean and nasty to him. He stayed. And now I, fi- I find it a joy. It's, it's actually easy to sit with others when they feel that ache. It never feels too much. And it doesn't overwhelm me because I was loved that way. The way he loved me in my loss became the way in which I now war for others. I stay and I fight and I pray and I love. And I do that because he did it for me first. I hear his voice because I've stayed close to it. He showed me I could trust him to never leave and I could trust that he would speak to me and lead me to a new place. And he made my hearing strong. Months later, I was leading a group of women in an inner healing exercise and I had written this guided prayer and I wanted to walk it through with Matt before I would do it with the women So sitting in our living room right next to each other, I led us through this guided prayer. I was transported in my mind to this tiny beach on an island, but really it was just a patch of sand in the middle of a massive sea. I was fully present in my body and soul, but what I saw, like I'd never seen it before and what took place, I'd never, it had never been a thought in my mind before. God the Father was sitting right next to me. He was leaning back on his strong arms and like they were super tan and he was like his legs were long and stretched out in front of him, crisscrossed. He was relaxed. I was laying on my stomach, staring at the ocean with my hands under my chin and my feet were kind of oscillating between the sand and the air and I bounced them uh, off the sand, kind of like just when a kid's at the beach and it's like I was discovering how bendy my knees were. I leaned my head on God's legs and I said, will you show me how you dispatch the angels? He didn't speak, but he smiled. And as if given a silent command, the sky was just filled with angels descending and ascending from the sky. The sea stretched out before me was actually like the earth all flattened out. And I could see 
um, angels delivering healing over different countries. And I saw angels dropping swords, food, and it looked like what I, I assume or imagine an air traffic controller sees. It was like never out of control. There was order and joy. Even the warring angels had joy. I guess because they really know and understand victory, right? I mean, they live in it. I kept asking God questions about like which angels were delivering what and how and why. And he was just like laugh, not at me, of course, like never at me, but just this delighted laughter that his daughter was enjoying his like mysterious and wonderful system. I was planning on digging into like really heavy theological angel and human questions when a bird came shooting down like an arrow from the sky and into the water at like a crazy speed. I looked at God wanting an explanation, but he smiled and gestured for me to go look into the water. So I ran over to the water's edge and I ducked my head under the water with like my eyes wide open because in a vision, you can do stuff like that. There was a man with chains around his legs and waist, and he was screaming and trying to free himself. And the bird swam down to the man and broke the chains, broke the chains off with its beak. The man uh, started swimming up, and the chains broke and fell down like into the darkness. I pulled my head out and looked at God in amazement, and I was about to ask God about five hundred questions. When the bird came out of the water and hovered above us and shook off the water. But it wasn't a bird. It was a girl. She was about five years old with cobalt blue and teal wings with gold in every feather. They were not huge wings, but you could just tell they were fast. And this little girl looked delighted and, like, dangerous, like, a bit wild, uh, but in, in a beautiful, pure way. I was standing next to God, and he was still relaxing on the sand. And she winked at God, and he smiled. And then she said, bye, Mom. And she shot off on her next assignment. I looked at God and I was undone just like, honestly, just like I am now. I was undone with wonder and amazement and joy. Oh gosh, the joy was a million times more than any of the pain I had ever felt in losing Birdie. I looked at God and without even speaking, it was like, it was like we were having a conversation, but without words. He said, She's one of my fiercest warriors. She was born with my fire around her, and my glory is always in her midst. I jumped on that beach, and I fell down laughing. I like couldn't even contain the delight of this reality. And as if he knew what I was about to ask next, he answered me. He said, my son paid too high a price for the kingdom to not come to earth over and over again. 
even when you are not asking for it. The great cloud of witnesses is filled with warriors who are still walking out their call and destiny in my kingdom. The vision ended and I opened my eyes and as tears streamed down my face, I turned to Matt and said, I cannot wait to tell you about Birdie. Right now, I want to ask you, who's listening, what are you aware of? I will ask this question quite often in the life of this podcast. And what I'm asking is this. What are you aware of in your body, in your soul, in your mind? Are you connecting to a place in yourself that is now louder and needs more attention than before? This can be good or it can be uncomfortable, but are you aware of it? And in the awareness of it, can you access how tightly you're gripping it or how loosely you're holding it? Whatever it is that you're aware of, can you invite the Lord into it? If it is disappointment, grief, anger, sadness, resentment, longing, or ache, can you invite him to sit with you in this awareness? And as you sit together, can you be aware of how he's sitting with you? Is he holding you? Is he speaking to you? Is he singing a song over you? Allow the nearness of him to carry you as you become more aware of what you've been holding and maybe what you want to let go of. Take a breath. Let his presence wash over you and breathe him in. Your God is willing to take anything you want to give him. Allow him to resuscitate those atrophied muscles and those parts of you that haven't been walking correctly. Allow him to walk with you in that valley you've been walking in too long alone. Let him come near you. Let him speak to you. Let him love you. I bless you with the nearness of God today. And I'm praying that you experience his incredible closeness. This is just so incredible. And I'm so thankful that you're listening. And I can't wait to talk to you guys again soon. Well, darkness surrounds me. Can't see your face Life's crashing down on me Can't feel your grace The tears have been my comfort And sadness my song 
Allow 